out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Annie Anxiety, sometimes known as Little Annie. I don't know who by, but anyway, I just called her Annie. Um, yes, she is, um, yes, singer, songwriter, painter, poet, writer, performer, everything you could imagine, and has worked with such people as Adrian Sherwood with the On New Sound uh, record label, plus, um, yes, the members of Crass, including Penny Rambert and also Steve Ignorant as well as a lot of other people, but I'm not going to go through all those now because that's um, probably going to be an in- interview. Um, this is a call to America, so um, the quality's all right, but um, sometimes the, um, yeah, she has a bit of a cough, but um, don't worry, she's fine. Anyway, uh, so after some casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that exciting subject of those early musical influences. Annie? It's over to you. Well, well, pretty much the same. I mean, I mean the Prague stuff. I, I hated. You know, you had nothing. You know, roughly around the same age as you. So it, it, there was this whole kind of sense that you know you'd miss the greats, and it was, uh, it, it, you know, it was all dead. <laughs> you know, I don't know we kept hearing you miss everything. So, but, so, but then, uh, Lou Reed, and Bowie, uh, some of you took me to, was about 14 to see the Kinks. Right. And, and, uh, it was, and then I crossed into, I don't know about over there, but that crossed into that whole glam thing, which then became, you know, in New York anyway, the punk thing. So, you know, uh, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was listening to, like, older people's records, and then, but then, uh, with Bowie and stuff, it just was like, wow, you know. Yes. It was, it was, it was quite something. So where, where did you grow up in New York? Yes. Right. So that must have been quite a formative place to sort of shape the person you are. I, I think so. I mean. It, it kind of gives you a certain adrenaline level that you expect to keep going, but uh, but uh, I, I, I think it shapes. It, I mean, it shapes your expectations because it was it was falling apart at the time. Yes. You know, in a major recession, uh, and um. Yeah, I didn't finish high school. I didn't go to high school or anything. <coughs> but my having my first cigarette, um, and uh, it, yeah, I mean, it it didn't weigh. It was it was confusing because there was like a lot of kind of you know when I discovered the whole club thing in New York back then, and I, I was you know sneaking and we were underage, but I, people didn't care much in those days. Um, it seemed like the city was going to hell, but there, there seemed to be a whole lot of glamorous people yes. around. I didn't quite know how they pulled it off. And then, you know, I didn't know about things like that. Some people had trash runs or had sugar daddies or, uh, you know, all kinds of ways of uh, looking and seemingly having fabulous lives with no means of support. <laughs> it was really you know, but you know the thing is, luckily when you're a teenager, you don't know how how dangerous things actually are, or how yeah, uh, foolhardy. You know, you don't have any, you don't know the ramifications. So. Well, we take risks. I guess there's naivety and risks going on. But you, because um, I, I mean, you know, I remember various documentaries watching on New York in the seventies, and there was that element of, like you said, everything was kind of um, kind of be almost being abandoned. But at the same time, there was that. Sort oh, absolutely. Of, there was the sort of growth of punk, and then there was rap music, and there was disco, and like you said, there was this kind of um, oh, and the disco. Well, that, that was that's what I was listening to too. 
Yes, you know? we loved a bit of yeah, disco, which was huge, which is which was in a way much more. I mean, punk music, on no way and everything. It was more kind of like just fuck you. It was not. It was. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was so different than what was going on in the UK. You know, it, it, it was fun and everything, but I mean, punk in New York comes from what is like street punk, you know, that you're, you're a bit of a thug, you know, in a, in a, uh, a waste, you know. So I guess it was the same thing, but also but the disco thing, which was really pretty revolutionary. Yes. You know, actually much more revolutionary, you, you know, because you had, you know, uh, gay, straight, white, black, Latin, Asian. That's why people hated it so much, because it brought people together. Yeah, it's interesting. But you, I mean, at an amazingly young age, kind of formed your kind of first band at 16, which is quite extraordinary, because mm-hmm. 16 is... I mean, you know, at the time you think sixteen, you you know, you know it all. And then when you meet a sixteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old, absolutely know everything. Yes, <laughs> but when you meet a sixteen-year-old now, you think, my God, you're just out of nappies. But anyway, but were your were your um, really were your parents kind of um, you know were they kind of bohemian types or hippie types or you know? uh, well, no, they were definitely uh, they were definitely. No, I mean, they, they didn't think they were going they, their, their ideologies and what they did with it were absolutely cutting edge, you know, and not, it was very different from, you know, I mean, uh, they said, no, my, I mean, my father had a little tiny print shop in the Bronx. You know, my mom was painted, but also did uh, 8 million other jobs, you know, and, and then didn't work, you know, if women didn't, if, for the most part, then you know, once if they had kids, uh, but they're they're you know, uh, they made a point of educating us, you know, not not with school because I certainly wasn't going, but you know, they, of uh, it's like force watching PBS, you know, the public broadcasting system, and <laughs> there was some value on. My mother dragged us to every house of worship of, of all religions across the board. And she, uh, she exposed us. We were really blessed. I mean, museums, I hated it, but that's what we do. You know, yes. if there was any, my father had a day off when I was a little kid. So that kind of, uh, and, and I guess politically, they were, you know, they're involved in, uh, the anti-war and the and civil rights movement. So uh, I guess it was, there was no word for it then. We were just oddballs. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, yes. Oddball family down the street. Oh. You know, in a very kind of, a, uh, you know, oppressively narrow-minded, uh, you know, typical blue-collar neighborhood where everybody, you know, at the time, you know, it was fear, but, I don't know that it changed much up there. Mm. <laughs> you know, sure, because it really was people had, you know, the, the Bronx was literally on fire most of the time. You know, and you, but if you don't know any different, you know, and I remember, it like, uh, you know, my pops was funny as hell. You know, he pointed out that the, the police station was called the Little House on the Prairie because everything else was burnt around it. You know, for, <laughs> Miles, you know, and the, we called it the train. I used to take downtown. Was called the death train. Then, and, and the city was literally abandoned by the federal government. Yes, well, I, I remember sort of um, that you had that sort of you know there was almost from the from various documentaries. You know, it was almost like just leaving it to go, just just abandon New York, which is kind of amazing to think now. But then you you know you form your band, and then sort of by eighty one, you were sort of. Um, Got gone to the UK. So, you know, your first band, Annie and the Asexuals, did that come together relatively quickly? And, and did you sort of manage to sort of, yes, and did you find your voice and, and be in a front person? Kind oh, of, oh, oh, Lord, no. <laughs> well, actually, I do with that. The first, very first band, it was because 
it was a, I was asked by this friend of Blessed who were actually a year younger than me, you, you know, um, you know, do you want to do a support slot? I didn't even know what support meant. You know, I mean, we were little kids. We were playing kick me signs on each other's back. You know, <laughs> um, I pulled up down together with these guys I knew from the Bronx who, uh, we were terrible. The first show was awful. I mean, it was awful, but I, I, I loved it. I kind of got hooked. Got sick and got hooked, and that was it. And then the second round, it did come together easily because the scene in New York was relatively small. I mean, you're talking about something with, let's see, maybe 17th Street down to, you know, uh, 4th Street. It's it, 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 it 10, a little over 10 blocks, you know. But we, but you, there was, uh, and what's good about things being that small is you get to know people real quick. And, uh, uh, but no, I mean, I kind of, you know, but as far as I found how I always, uh, how I still approach is I would go for, you know, we, we, uh, improvise, but we go for a certain mood and, and, and decide the mood and then just go for it. And sometimes it was great, you know, it was kind of a tonal craziness, but, but it was pretty, uh, I guess it would be called no wave or, or kind of industrial. But I mean, gay people instruments they never played before, you know. So it, and it wasn't. I didn't know anything about avant garde or any of that. I just we just did it, you know. It was ways to make the you know our unemployment days useful. Yes. Yeah. You know, and did you? Um, I mean, because there was like bands like Art. And there was obviously the sort of that punk movement you you spoke about. Did, did you were you sort of did you feel sort of part of that scene, or did you suddenly slowly become part of that kind of scene that we from say like the UK would be thinking, God, I bet they're all hanging out together with the Ramones and Debbie Harry and um, Jonathan Richmond. Was it anything and Andy Warhol, obviously? Um, was it anything? Well, was it anything like that at all? Well, I mean, not, it was in a sense. In, in the club, when you went out at night, because there was only two or three clubs, so everybody went everywhere. Um, and, uh, but, but like anything, and, and some people were really wonderful, and some people were like, looked at us at like what we were, which was scruffy kids, you know, <laughs> you know, because it was, uh, so it wasn't like one big happy family by no means, but, but, there were there was a lot of everybody wanted to see everybody's gigs, including all the musicians. Yes, because it, it was it really was not the amount of kind of uh, attention it eventually got. It was a pretty small, you know, bunch of people and people like you know Richard Hell had played with television and you know there, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, crossover. There was uh, oh, what's his name. Uh, Oh God, what's his name? Who's doing the John Holstrom? There was. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm smoking this There was a uh, punk magazine, you know, and if we, we didn't have many fan scenes, but we, there was the ones we did. Kind of, you know, there. Yeah, I mean, it was a scene within within a very small radius. You went out of that radius, you were nothing. Yes, you know, and you're just weird looking. Get your ass whooped, you know. <laughs> but and everybody lives in the neighborhood because it was that's the thing. It would never have happened if there hadn't been such a terrible recession because nobody wants to live anywhere near where all those clubs were. I mean, it, it was no man's land, so uh, it was cheap living. So that's why things were able to flourish. Yes. And then how did you sort of find yourself, you know, a few years later, sort of getting invited over to the UK by um, Steve Ignorant from, from Crass? Well, I was going to go over, I mean, the one thing I did, I mean, I had one, it was, it was a wonderful time, and it was also having to do really, really heinous jobs. But uh, I had, uh, had planned to go to uh, Berlin, because I'd seen the film Cabaret, I guess. 
to and um what happened was I got wrongfully arrested and couldn't leave this state in New York for a year before my trial came up. I mean, awful lot happened in a very, very short time. And I met Steve on my doorstep in New York one night. And, uh, you know, we've been riding. And then I was able to uh, leave the U.S. finally. So, you know, she said, come visit. And I, I don't think they want me for ever, but <laughs> it was a guest, guest who came to stay, you know, the visitor that came to stay. Was it Steve? Was that him? I oh, know. I said, who who came to stay? I, well, no, I met Steve, and then I, uh, they were playing in New York, Crossroads, and I met the others. And then uh, me and Steve kept in touch. But, uh, yeah, we, I didn't mean to stay and get involved. I just was supposed to be visiting. Because uh, Laker Airways, Airways had come along and made kind of European travel possible suddenly you know i mean that that was always something maybe you do once before you you died you, you went to the old country you know your parents old country or whatever yeah and with later that opened up you know it was pretty uh revolutionary at the time that what you could go to you know fly europe for 50 bucks or something that's so, right i'd forgotten yeah so then i mean you you know it's kind of an amazing story because obviously you go to the UK, you know, for the early 80s, which I have to say was quite a grim place at the time. Were you staying at Dial House in Essex with the members of Crass? Was that where you found yourself? At first, yeah, at first I was, you know, I was staying there and uh, then eventually was squatting, you know, all over London. Yes. But yeah, no, it was a really grim place. So New York had been, it was... It was, it was grim, but less dangerous. But it was pretty grim. Yeah, and then you know when you're in the UK, you know you start working with people like Adrian Sherwood on the On You Sound Records, which you know I remember listening to this DJ called John Peel, and he was always playing uh-huh, anything yeah. from Adrian Sherwood, which is kind of amazing. How did you seem to be one of those people who just managed to sort of find themselves working? With a phenomenal amount of people, you know, including, you know, Bim Sherman, Paul Oakenfold, Gary Clell, you know, Lee Scratch Perry, The Swans, I mean, Finney Tribe. I mean, how did you manage to, I mean, were you, I mean, were you just somebody that had that kind of magic magic quality that everyone wanted to work with you? I guess, I mean, at the time, I just said yes to almost anything I was asked to do. And I didn't really understand what I was doing. I mean, the thing was, I learned my craft. I mean, as I went along, it's funny, I listened to stuff. I did H's guy, what a high voice. I mean, for me anyway, you know, my voice is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, contralto, I guess. But, um, yeah, I mean, and even the way what was making music, I mean, I did that with Penny. I was, I was trying to make disco music. That's what I thought I was doing. But I didn't play anything. I mean, I've composed melodies my whole life and and lyrics, but, but, uh, you know, it was kind of, (coughs) I think my grace was, for the most part, I didn't know who people were. You know, I still don't. (laughs) So, and, uh, and I just got asked for, a phenomenal number of projects, which weren't at the time any big deal, you know. It was it was just, I mean, Adrian. That was through Penny. We were using the same studio, and I had it was I, my single, done a single, and Penny goes, "You should really meet this guy. He's kind of doing what you're doing with sound," and uh, and that was just like that was like my musical education sitting in on those sessions yes. you know, night after night after night after night and you know fell in love with uh, Adrian Kishi and the whole crew yeah and then I mean quite soon you, you brought out your first solo album Soul Possession on Corpus Christi Records did that I mean uh-huh. did that come together relatively smoothly I mean did you have an, a backing band who supported you on that no what I did was I, I made uh, noise tapes with with a, with cassettes 
you know, using uh, just, you know, sounds of the train or, or you know, alarm clocks, all kinds of things, or samples. We didn't have samplers, so we just, you know, uh, loop a piece of cassette tape together or something. And then, uh, and I had lyrics, but then we just, uh, Adrian got it, you know, just like Penny got Adrian got it right away what I was kind of going for. Yes. But, uh, I mean, that, there's, I don't know, one night, or morning, rather, after being up for 24 hours in, in Southern Studios, and John Loder got a bless his soul. We, we had a pile uh, of quarter-inch shapes, I mean, like tons. You know, he said, well, what's on this? What's this? We, go, we don't know. We, we were too tired to even, you know, figure out how to sit down while it's not what on what tape. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it came together smoothly and, and not because, uh, I mean, it was smooth to work with, but uh, audiences really didn't know how to take me, especially when I was touring with Crass. I mean, it was, there I was thinking I was doing kind of disco music and, and uh, getting spat on and things thrown at me and, I mean, that became, it was a baptism of fire, so anything after that was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I could imagine it was quite horrendous. So did you feel that you were, I mean, mean, because during that period, I mean, you you were very prolific. I mean, mean, did you sort of feel like the stars had lined up for you and and you just couldn't do kind of any, any kind of role, so to speak? No, I mean, absolutely opposite. I was, I was, uh, you know, like, like I had an immigrant experience working for no money, you know, cleaning or something, you know, getting fired from cleaning jobs, having to find another cleaning job, uh, or, uh, you know, I was an usher at the Shore Theater for like a dollar, you know, quid, two quid a shift or, at the most. I mean, really, uh, I was terminally in poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, but but it was okay because you know you were able to then and you know young enough where it was fun you know it was okay to be if you were cold or whatever but uh, and it seemed like I was on tour an awful lot of the time so it was it was a lot of work but I didn't I was prolific I've always always been just out of whatever reason it started me off writing and stuff in the first place. But, uh, but no, it never seemed necessarily like the stars were lined up, just more like dumb luck. Yes. You know, <laughs> and, and it really was, I, I would say it's the sessions that people I never heard. Yeah. You know, because it was just, I wanted to work, you know, and, and I like, if I liked them, if they were nice people, and, you know, it's okay, like current 93 and then through them I met Coil. You know, it's like, I, I was fortunate in getting uh, asked to do some pretty amazing projects. I just, but I never had any plans. And did you, and as, and as the eighties kind of went through, I mean, in this period, I mean, I remember it well, I suppose it was my formative years. I mean, you had sort of, there's been a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of that unrest because we'd had, there'd been the Falklands and then there was the miners' strike. And there was like... Exactly, which was just terrible. Watch that woman just destroy that country. Margaret Thatcher. So, yeah, so she was very much the dominant. Thatcherism was very dominant. And then you had, oh, Red Wedge, and you had that political movement. And then, you know, there was like the mainstream charts, which had that Trevor Horn kind of production. But then you Mm -hmm. had a lot of the indie stuff. And as you said, there were bands like Coil and the Flux of... um, Pink Indians, oh God, yes, flux of something, and um, you know there was a lot of kind of experimental stuff, and then you had the butthole surfers and Sonic Youth and Big Black were happening, so the noise scene was starting to sort of develop as well as alongside people like mm-hmm. us could do. I mean, as the eighties progressed, were you feeling at all? I suppose homesick because homesick because you were obviously you know had still quite young here and and you were living in london i guess um mm-hmm. and had worked with you know a phenomenal amount of people did did it ever sort of feel too much or like you were not able to keep control of it or was it just kind of okay because of your enthusiasm and youth being on your side 
Yeah, yeah, I think I think the latter definitely. I mean, I would get homesick, you know, for you know, you know, seeing family and friends, and we'd get back from time to time. But uh, you know, it would confuse me because New York then started getting kind of you know, once Reagan came in, it was all about money. You know, that's all it was about was money, yeah. and you know, uh, I felt more foreign when I was coming back to New York than I did by that time being Britain. You know, it was just, uh, I, it, it was just all about hyper consumerism. You know, the eighties over here. So, uh, you know, it was like I'm never coming back to this place. You know, screw this place. For a number of years, I felt like that. It was just felt evil. You know, so uh, I, I really, uh, I mean, in the Reagan years, I mean, the his statues were bleak in, in, in the have-nots, the, the Reaganomics made everybody feel like they, well, they could get it if they could step on enough heads, you know, to get there. So it was pretty alien coming home. Yes, it must have felt like a lot had changed in New York in that one, you know, that period, actually. And then you took a hiatus off, you know, the music uh, world to to sort of concentrate on sort of acting, painting, performance, writing. Did you? I mean, were you feeling burnt out by then? I mean, it wasn't so much of a hiatus. So I, I got <laughs> the world took a hiatus on me. I, I mean, things had, I'd gotten signed to ACO, uh, which was kind of Atlantic Sax, which lasted for a few minutes. I mean, it, it was a, uh, you know, it was NWA, Michelle Lee, and myself on the label. And I was living high on the hog for a little bit. And, uh, and when that fell apart, and, you know, I went to, because they had me on ice for a year. I couldn't work while, while I was working on this single, which seemed to go on forever and ever and ever. Yes. They were spending ridiculous amounts of money, you know, so I had, when that fell apart, um, you know, uh, I did short and sweet with Adrian and, and the Tackhead guys, you know, what became Tackhead. And uh, I actually came back to the States because I was working with, Came here to open for Grace Jones, which which was incredible. You know, I mean, that was incredible, and I realized, you know, I, I miss this. I miss that kind of U.S. at the time, which was, I called like enthusiasm of the young. Now they're just young and stupid, and it's not that young anymore. This country, but uh, so, and it was also, you know, if you. You, and I've seen it with a lot of my contemporaries. If you don't recreate yourself by a certain age, um, you know the world doesn't want to know. They want, you know, they want, you know, especially then they want twenty-two-year-old girls and you know, want Madonna wannabes, you know. So I just it wasn't so much that I took a hiatus. I think it didn't. I just had to figure out what I was doing. Yes, you know, and uh, and and again, I, I lucked in. I'm an actor. I still don't. I mean, I'm not really, really, but I, I met a lot of kind of off Broadway people in in a gay bar. I used to hang out and and got asked to do stuff. And uh, you know, I had been. I was working on music, but there was you know, uh, you know, it went from anything is possible for a while. The '90s felt like nothing's possible. Yes. You know, unless it was money. Unless you can make somebody a lot of money. It was... But, um, you know, I still did shows, but I did them like in... I was doing little bits in kind of drag clubs and or, or dance clubs in New York. And, uh, you know, but, and I was also burnt out. I had worked some from when I was 16, you know, and... Uh, got myself a real job for a while doing syringe exchange. You know, lived in Mexico for a while. Uh, it, you know, started to paint a little bit. So, yes. uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, uh, 
it, you know, it came to the past again. That I, to, it was time to make albums again. It didn't have a label, but I hooked up with uh, Anohi, who's in Anthony, who uh, kept on me. She was a singer. I go, yeah, yeah, everybody knows a singer. And I heard of it. I was like, oh my God. You know, when uh, it, he asked me to sing one of his songs in a play and then sing it for the, the record release party. And out of that, we started working on the albums again. So it, it's really, I mean, you know, I've never had plans. I've had ambitions, but I never really had plans because they seldom work out. <laughs> yes. Plan all you want. God, I know, especially at the moment. And did you, I mean, you know, again, you know, because, you, you know, like having worked with mem- some of the members of Crass and then sort of Adrian Sherwood and, and, and those characters, then sort of being sort of, you know, working with people like Mark Almond as well, that, you know, who was an incredible uh-huh. performer. Did you, you know, again, you know, I, it, it, you managed to sort of be at the right place at the right time a lot of the, you know, throughout your career and life. Pardon me. Uh, apps. No, I mean, it really was some of it was, some of it was just really random luck, but with an awful lot of hard work, <laughs> you know, but, but, but it was, uh, as far as breaks, I, somebody said something once about, I don't remember who, and it was, you know, about how women are treated in the industry. Yeah. Which I don't I don't agree with because there were no women in the industry. You just worked and you learned to work really hard, and really good. And, you know, it's like being a baseball player. Nobody really cares about your feelings. You know, you got it's what you do at the end of the day. I was saying I didn't find it like that. You know, I didn't find uh, a gender an issue. And they said, well, you had all the when you know the right people. And I thought they weren't the right people when I met them. I mean, when Crash, when I met Crash, they were playing to eight people, you know, and they played with the subs, and the subs would watch them, and then they'd watch the subs, you know. So, um, you know, the, the I, I, it was j- just following my gut, you know, and if I got asked to do something and they were nice, I did it, you know. Yeah. And if I liked if I if the work had some integrity, rather, which is amazing, but, uh, you know, if they, if they were awful, I wouldn't have done it. So it, it might have been the right place at the right time, but at the time you didn't know if it was the right place or the wrong place. It was just the place you were at, you know. I mean, Mark, I mean, obviously that was a different case, but, uh, you know, or with Grace Jones, she, I got asked to do stuff that was, that, you know, wow, this is pretty wonderful, you know. But, uh, yeah. and, over, and over the years, how have you managed to sort of kind of look after your voice? And I just wondered how much you feel like it's changed. What about doing what I'm doing now, James, smoking and drinking coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have, have no, you... I, I don't cough like this all day. This is just my morning smoker. Oh, OK, then. So, because so, I was just thinking, for somebody who's, who's kind of career as your vocal I just you know by the way I'm a bit of a well I say a bit I was quite an asthmatic when I was much younger so struggling to breathe and you just sound very chesty that's um and I was thinking oh well, I do, well I've also got I picked up a condition I was a volunteer at the World Trade Center cleanup for nine months so uh we also swallowed a lot of asbestos and god knows what so I've also got a esophageal condition which uh kicks up you know, from time to time. <coughs> I mean, and that's what that is, you know, but, which most of us who are down there have it. Yes. You know, well, so stomach you're... acid burning our, our vital organs out. <laughs> I'm not, you got to laugh. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those things you got to laugh because you, you know. But, uh, but, then... no, when, but what I do do when I'm singing, I don't, I don't go out. For, for a number of days before I don't go to clubs because to speak, you know, where I can't hear anything and you got to shout over something, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so, because I, I sort of um, did an interview with a uh, 
a singer the other day, Holly Palmer, who'd been working, he'd worked with lots of people, done solo stuff, as well as working with Bowie on a few stuff. And then I mean, she was talking about sort of having to sort of train her voice, train the voice. Do you do any voice training yourself to keep it in? I do. <laughs> I don't, I don't do well with instructions. I kind of color outside the line. I always say that it's why with school, it didn't mean I wasn't thinking, I was thinking all over the place, you know, maybe. And, um, she took me to one lesson. Yes. And she said, she said that her pitching is worse than yours. You know, so that was that. And that's and my, the only thing in my life. But what I do do is uh, I aspire to sing better every, every project I do. And when, when that ceases to be the case, I won't do it anymore. Yes. You know, I, but uh, no, I, I mean, what I, I I'll sing along with you know, you know, uh, you know, soul stuff or gospel or everything, something when I'm at home, to, just to keep it, you know, stretched. I mean, because I mean, like this enforced too much. I've hardly opened my mouth to sing. Yeah. You know, but and so no, I don't do training. I go out in the weather. You're not supposed to. I drink liquor, you know, and, and smoke cigarettes and do all the stuff that, but I always have. And my voice is, it, it, it might not be the previous voice, but it's pretty recognizably mine. Yeah. You know, so. And when you, I mean, a few years ago, quite a few years, you did a um, your memoir, You Can't Sing the Blues mm-hmm. While Drinking Milk. How did that, um, I mean... Did you get an offer to do that with um, Tin Angel Books or publishing? Or uh, no, the... I got I was paid by Virgin originally, Virgin Books. In two, 99, I started writing that book. Yes. It, I, I said no, and I needed downtown. And I thought, I, you know, so at the time I thought I didn't have a, I haven't lived enough to warrant uh, writing an autobiography. And then I called back a few days later. I said, yeah, you know, it, it was just, yeah, it was something, but also it was good. It was actually really great discipline for me because I, I didn't write, you know, books or something called editing or, you know, that you could start in the middle and work backwards. You know, it's like that. I remember saying to the Virgin, I go, look, I think I'm going to be, I'm a terrible typist. I go, I think I'm going to be able to, but they get this type this for you instead of hand, <laughs> handwritten. They go, you can't type it. You got to do it on a computer. It's just so. <laughs> and I, that was my big concession. So somebody gave me a word processor, and I had floppy disks all over. You know, my I was living in Harlem at the time. You know, like like in lines on my floor. That was my way of editing. I'd have to go back to a different floppy disk. It was pretty complex, but it, but it was a great discipline. You know, and, and I just. Of course, it happens the same day as I get hired, you know, doing syringe exchange and was on interferon. So I just would get up two hours early before work, work two hours, um, uh, go to work, get back late at night, go back down all the way downtown. And uh, from Friday to Monday, I would make a pot of coffee and bunch of cigarettes and I'd leave the house and just write and write and it was actually it was actually a great exercise you know because you it's you learn a lot you know while writing had done poetry and everything but if you've really got to also convey you know if you you, you could be arty but you don't want to lose you know people's you know comprehension of what you're saying so it was really interesting. In the first draft, they said I didn't mention myself at all. Right. Did you? Um... Went, well, no, it's autobiography, and then I didn't say any names. So there was a lot of going back and forth. But it was, and what happened? Nine Eleven happened. They sent proofs to the cover, and I was wrapped up in fabric. And there was, and I, I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I look even darker skin than I was. I look like. Like I was in the Bin Laden family, so Virgin were like, "Well, you know, things are changing around here. We help you and your family and everybody safe." And basically, 
the project got dropped, but I got the rights and I got paid for it. And later on, teenage years later, they asked about, you know, when I was working for them, uh, they put it out. Yes. And it, um, I was going to say, did, I mean, did it sort of, or two things really, did it sort of bring up lots of stuff or did you have to process lots of stuff? And also, you know, did you manage in that world that is entertainment? Did you, how did you avoid or, or did you not avoid in you know, the world that is kind of drugs and drink? Well, I mean, because the thing was, it was pretty common knowledge that I didn't. Also, it was ex- it was exaggerated too by by people. It's the one thing where gender did play because if you're if you're a man and live like I live, you're you know you're Charles Bukowski or Nick Cave or something. You're a woman, you do that. You're a fucking tragedy, you know. So, but I didn't want to write. You know, I, I'm I'm not William Burke. I didn't want to write. There were so many great books written about uh, people's drug use. I thought, well, it's been done. So I, I kind of clarified that in the book that it was, you know, it, it, it's a personal choice and it could be real messy, you know, and I think the laws are fucked and, and uh, it could also be really dangerous and it killed a lot of friends of mine. So I, I just kind of thought, well, I got to mention it, but let me just put that disclaimer out there that I didn't want to go down that no, I'm not, you know, diary of an opium eater. It, I wanted to, it was part of it, but it was, you know, it was like being, writing a book about being a cigarette smoker, so what? Yes. You know? So did you? And I wanted, I, I wanted to be more than that, you know, I wanted to, and more than myself, you know, because one's own life, if you live it, it's not, it's not that interesting. No. But then, you know, I, I always remember sort of when I've listened to uh, interviews with Lemmy from Motorhead, I mean, he'd obviously taken an awful lot of drugs and drunk as well, but but he did try to avoid certain drugs. Which which were your kind of go-to drugs and which ones did you try to avoid? All of them. And you think anything was, you know, I didn't like, I didn't like going sideways. I didn't like weed or anything. You know, I mean, as a kid, but no, it was whatever, whatever, you know, was... Around, I like things that would quiet me because of, you know, I'm, if you're a workaholic, if you're not working, your brain is always going, you know, and I think that's why people, you know, booze is great for dumbing down, which I think is why most people drink is to dummy down. Yes. Did you, you know, and, and I, I didn't know if, I've, if I missed this, but did you avoid heroin or was that one that you... Oh, no, no, I did not avoid it. No, I... I I mean, I was turned on to that when I was fourteen. Right, and and, yeah. and how did you manage to not get killed by by using such a heavy drug? I, I'll tell you what is a miracle because I lost half, half, including my fiance at the time. He overdosed, and, uh, you know, which is kind of how I got into music because I had to do something, you know, I can just ride the subways. Um. Uh, but, uh, you know, in New York, I, I lost so many friends to, to you know, AIDS, you know, if, if not overdoses, and which is why I'm a big believer in syringe exchange. Well, when I got asked to work there, I was like, well, I'm not qualified. I don't, even go to, I don't even go to high school. And they go, well, you, you know how to talk to people, and, and you've been there, you know, and that's not about trying to, Get clean people up if they want. I hate that word. It's not clean or dirty. But, you know, for people to, we we don't, we didn't proselytize getting people into detox or anything like that. We just, you know, dead junkies don't recover. You know, and and uh, I know for myself, it was being treated like a human being in a a different syringe exchange where I volunteered, and somebody asked if I wanted to go to. A, big HIV conference and which of course I didn't do it at the time but it was like that was like winning the Grammys you know because somebody treated I was treated like a human being that had validity and because that's what our society does is marginalize people you know uh, which is crazy I mean you know when I was doing syringe exchange there was every cross-sector society came in there. You know, some of them running high-power Wall Street businesses, cops, firemen, people uh, are doing what they need to feel they need to do at the time. 
you know, it's treating those people with uh, dignity and their worth, you know, and and I've seen some awful things, you know, I mean, and heard awful things. I I used to work on doing outreach, you know, with sex workers at two in the morning on the straw, you know, and, uh, and I also saw miracles. You know, I mean, I saw people, my, my old job went to one of the girls I used to, you know, working girls that I used to give syringes to. You know, I've seen people become lawyers or become uh, producers and, or just become happy, you know. So it's, you know, I mean, it's all addiction. People go shopping. Some people go shopping. Some people get married. So, you know, anytime you look for anything outside yourself, you're you're messing with drugs, you know, to make you feel better, so... Yes, absolutely. And did, and I was just going to say, when did you um? Yes, did you, did that change at all? I mean, or you know, did you um stop that and just stick stick to coffee and cigarettes? Yeah, I stopped things when it it stopped working for me. I mean, uh, you know, when when the kind of negatives, you know, including risking going to jail at any given time, which you know, it, the, the whole war on drugs thing is evil because it's, it's it's usually a war on the poor. You know, you got to lose a lawyer, you don't go to jail if you get, you know, you got to have a ton of cocaine and be okay. You got $5 worth of crack, you might end up in prison. You know, so it's, there's a lot of the, the, the racism and classism goes on in the war on drugs, uh, which is ridiculous when you could buy liquor everywhere. But no, I mean, I kind of, uh, I, for a while, uh, was totally abstinent, you know, and, uh, and now, you know, it's just, I don't know, there's not much out there that kind of fascinates me for our substances, but, uh, you know, I mean, in this country, we, Myself included, we all got put on painkillers. We got put on opiates. So it's kind of ridiculous. You get off opiates, then you break something and you're on opiates again. Yes. And that, that now they take away the opiates. Now you can get a, you know, uh, they can take a leg off and you're not, you get lucky to get an aspirin, which is equally as ridiculous. I, I believe that, you know, grown ups should have a uh, choice. You know, if, you know, in a way, like marginalizing people, you take away their personal responsibility, and um, people don't choose to have their lives destroyed because they've got to get their fix or, you know, are unemployable because they've been to jail. You know, it, it, nobody sets out to do that. So, um, and I, and I really don't, you know, it's viewed as a problem for some people. It's like it makes them able to function. You know, opiates are actually a good antidepressant, you know, and uh, it and it works for some people, you know, and if it's working to, to, to be punitive about people's life choices, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm not gonna, I don't think my neighbors a fuck up if they, you know, they're eating beef, you know, it's, it's their business. You know, uh, yes, well, absolutely. And I just got curious because, because I mean, yes, you were still performing last year. What have you got? Sort of, I was, I was supposed to be performing this year, but then I was, I was, my bookings up until twenty uh, twenty twenty one. I was I was booked up until uh, March of twenty twenty one. Yes, let me. I know it's pretty. And, and uh, are you able to? I mean, I mean, because I did speak to a, a few musicians who had got this year all planned, and this was going to be, you know, basically how they're going to survive. Have, have you? Are you going to be able to sort of navigate this year if it all gets slightly cancelled for well, twenty one? If we're lucky. Yeah, I mean, I was supposed to. It was funny. I was supposed to be working on a a, a kind of theatrical piece for Vienna for six weeks in Vienna. And I was in New York right right when they started meeting up with Paul, who also show I work with, when we we were sitting down with pen and paper, you know, outlining it. 
and it was in the back of my head. I was thinking, ain't no rush, ain't no rush, you know, because you're supposed to be ready to start work up, workshopping it in uh, Hamburg in July, beginning of July. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it did occur to me the other night that uh, as far as live work touring, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. You know, because you're asking, it depends on getting as many people into a venue as possible. Um, so I might have to rethink that. I, I had an album. We were also mastering the album up in New York. That was ready to roll. We're still going to put that out, but we're trying to find imaginative ways, especially since a lot of people have no income right now. Yes. You know, yeah. which is, you know, and uh, I mean, the thing is, it, it, you know, very few musicians make enough to live on doing their work, you know. So, uh, you know, and I, you know, I've been lucky to have my, you know, get a soundtrack here and there that keeps funds things. Uh, so, I don't know, you know, but I can't grieve it because uh, I wasn't going to even do this in the first place. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so it's. Uh, you know, I I, did, I seldom made plans. Definitely didn't plan this one. No. What's going on? It's not understood. So, I, I guess we'll see. I, it's not like I've been writing a great American novel or or uh, doing anything creative in this because uh, you know, it's, you know, getting creative with the mop and trying to see what's where we're allowed to go. It takes. A lot of creativity just get through the day right now, you know, yes. normal stuff for everybody. And way also, I feel like everybody's writing their own sonnet, you know, whether they know it or not. You know, you go on social media and we're all going through the same thing, it, not in the same ways, but in it, anything, the inequities are like screaming, you know, anybody pretended they didn't see it before, they're living it now. But uh, so, uh, uh, you know, and the same with nine eleven. I didn't write about that. It just felt like, well, everybody's going through it, and, and my part of it isn't isn't for public consumption. So, but but um, so I don't know what like rest of. I don't know what the hell is going to happen. I don't even know what the hell we're dealing with because it, it's really hard to get any information except fear. Yes, you know. And confusion. I mean, just lastly, what would you say to a an eighteen year old self who was kind of starting out? In your case, probably sixteen year old self. You know, if you could have yeah. given them some bit of advice as they were beginning that kind of journey, and you know, because obviously you've got a phenomenal amount of experience and decades have gone. So I just wondered what you know if you could have just said a couple of things. Wow. Well, one, you know. Probably life would have been easier if I learned to type because I could get a little higher uh, creative menial labor to do. Um, I would say, you know, and also I learned uh, I learned this lesson pretty early on about because you, you know it's a bruising, it's a brutal fucking industry. Let's not make uh, any bones about it. You know, it's. It, it's it's bruising. You got to grow really thick skin. Which luckily, luckily I I kind of did. That doesn't mean things didn't hurt, but but you you know you're able. You, you got to keep going, or you you know you're done. Um, but but luckily I learned not to kind of base my self worth on others. You know on on the popularity or, or of my stuff. You know because th that's that's talk about drugs that's a real drug that, that's a huge drug and that, that's now with the internet that's across the board it's it's like gambling it's a validation from from others and you know uh good reviews can make you feel good for all 10 seconds you know but don't believe them and don't, any more than you believe the bad ones you know just trust your gut you know and if and, and if you're working on something lame you know it, you know, now, now if I'm working on something, it's not, it doesn't feel right. I just, you know, 
back out of it. You know, I tell people it's not working. You know, not that, not that this it's there's anything bad about it, but it's not a good fit. You know, I've, I've learned to speak up and also speak up. Go, no, you know, you know, with people I work with, no, I don't like this. Let's go for this. Let's try this. Uh, but if, if people are doing it for, for, with any idea that of success, they're out of their fucking minds, you know, because <laughs> the success comes, but it, it's 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 like smoking crack. It's great for five seconds, you know, and then you're gonna want more. So you know, and and uh, it's there's a whole agenda behind the scenes that has nothing to do with art. It's you know, it's money and politics. So it's, yeah, so I would have told myself that. I guess I was living it, but I, would, I didn't have the wisdom to, to, to kind of prescribe to it. You know, I, you know, I mean, I, I did, you do because you after you, and you're resilient, but if you want to keep going, because I, I did, I saw a lot of people, especially when they hit about 30, you know, they, they get bitter. You know, like, well, you think they should have been a this or that by now. I'm like, well, you know, it's, you don't want to be the same at 30 that you were at 20, you know, or, or you know, 35 as you were at 30. It's got to be. So uh, that, and it, you know, no, no matter what, Success means if it if it if it doesn't feel successful as work, then it, it, if a million people like it, it sucks, and nobody likes it, it sucks, you know, and vice versa. If it, if it sells one copy and you, you're proud of it, that that's it's got to be about the work and not oneself. And you really got to take your ego out of it constantly to to act. Acting is taking one's ego out. Of the equation, modeling, modeling, you're really taking your ego out of the equation because that ego stuff will kill you, you know? Yes, quite. And and just kind of lastly, what, you know, what record or album are you, when you look back, you, you're sort of proud of stuff. I just wonder if there was one particular period or one particular piece of work that you think. Oh, no, there's so many things. I love, like, you know, stuff I do with Wolfgang Press. Uh, you know, I love to. You know, the albums, you know, Genderful, which I did, I don't know, was that about seven years ago, you know, here in New York or, uh, you know, all the stuff with Paul. But then with Kishi, that uh, that first, what is it, uh, uh, Giacomo, I, there's none, there's actually none I could pick because, you know, like I don't listen to my own stuff unless I have to, yes. you know, to learn words. And... You know, stuff that I was really hard on myself at the time. I go, wow, that was pretty fucking ahead of the curve, you know? You know, it was, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm pretty hard on myself. Yes. You know, editing-wise, I'm, uh, you know, I was in the book. I didn't put everything in there. Because it'd be, one, it's boring, and secondly, it's my business. And I'm the same with music. I, You know, there, there's things... That note's wrong. I should have done that. This sounds childish. This, and then you then you go back in retrospect. You go, wow, that's not bad, you know. So, but it's really hard for me to pick a a favorite baby, you know. Yes, I know. That's a tricky one, isn't it? But look, it's selfish choice, right? <laughs> it, is, it is. Yes, I know. I know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? God, so that that brings back the eighties, actually. Sophie's choice. But um, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, and um, I've got quite well, a bit. That was a uh, great stuff. And I'm, you know, stay, take care, and stay safe as we can in these weird I, times. Are things bad over there? Um. No, they're not bad. It's just like we're all a bit on pause, really. We just hit the pause button and everybody's kind of wondering what's happened next. But there is no real, there's nothing, I don't think there's bad, bad, but it's kind of like lack of leadership of what comes next, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, not like us who have this wonderful, I mean, we're, 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 <laughs> this fucking guy running thing. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> He's really dumb as shit. I mean, 
it's not just now you got half the house, White House infected, you know, it's a, it's a absolute mess. But uh, it's a stupid country. But yeah, it's what next? It, it, I don't know. It's like bad science fiction on a good day. Yes. It's, it's really, and that was me in conversation with Annie Anxiety. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show and uh, keep it positive, please, because frankly, life's too short. And also, um, all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Podbean, Spotify and iTunes. So there you go. Anyway, have a great week.